Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale University and author of the book How Fascism Works, who examines the election of Giorgia Maloney, Italy's first prime minister from a neo-fascist party since the end of World War II. Marjorie Cohn, past president of the National Lawyers Guild, who warns that the Supreme Court's right-wing majority is likely headed to a ruling in the Merrill v. Milligan case that will further dismantle the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And Edgar Franks, political director of the Families United for Justice Union, who talks about Washington State farm workers' fight for health and safety regulations amid rising temperatures caused by climate change. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Widespread flooding across West Africa, including Nigeria and its neighbors, Niger, Chad, and Cameroon, has led over a half million people to flee their homes and has endangered critical rice harvests. In the weeks before the COP27 climate summit in Egypt, the deluge has provoked renewed focus on committing international funds to address the damage caused by climate change in African communities. A looming health crisis is building in Nigeria's Kano state, where over 14,000 farms have been destroyed. United Nations agencies are warning of a growing cholera epidemic in areas where armed insurgencies have already displaced tens of thousands. Foreign Policy magazine reports that Chad has experienced the worst downpours in 30 years. Over recent decades, people have been at higher risk of flooding due to deforestation. The situation in Africa is similar to that of Pakistan, which recently experienced deadly floods. Government officials there failed to invest in infrastructure to defend against flooding. Climate activists are now looking for a tenfold increase in climate aid to Africa. In 2009, wealthy nations committed to $100 billion of assistance annually for the world's poor countries in order to help them adapt to extreme weather events, but those funding targets have never been met. The real estate company run by Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has agreed to pay a $3.25 million fine in a case brought by the state of Maryland. Kushner companies also agreed to reimburse tens of thousands of tenants who lived in apartment complexes once owned by the real estate company. The settlement, announced by Maryland's Attorney General Brian Frosch, grew out of a 2019 lawsuit against Kushner's subsidiary, Westminster Management. The case alleged Westminster used unfair and deceptive rental practices, which violated Maryland's consumer protection law. Frosch declared it was a case in which a landlord deceived and cheated tenants and subjected them to miserable living conditions. The Maryland lawsuit was an outgrowth of a 2017 investigation by ProPublica and the class action lawsuit filed by tenants. According to ProPublica, the Kushner companies brought hundreds of cases against current and former tenants for unpaid rent and broken leases. 
This occurred at the same time that tenants were forced to contend with leaking roofs, rodent infestations, and rampant mold. Westminster agreed to reach out to 30,000 former tenants to let them know about their right to file claims of restitution for rent they were forced to pay, despite substandard living conditions. The outcome of midterm elections often rests with a motivated base of activists. Four years ago, there was a backlash against President Donald Trump. Now Democrats hope a backlash against the Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling overturning Roe v. Wade federal protections for abortion will motivate voters to go to the polls this November. One key to electoral success may be identifying frustrated Democrats in rural and red districts. Founded in 2017, Movement Labs and its offshoot Rural Power Labs has merged state-of-the-art text messaging with voter mobilization while rebuilding local Democratic committees in rural regions in purple states. Texts are sent to facilitate live door-to-door voter engagement. Rural Power Lab is now active in Wisconsin, Michigan, Virginia, Arizona, Kansas, and Montana. In purple Wisconsin, a perennial swing state, Democrats have lost large numbers of rural voters over the last 20 years due to declining economies and perceived cultural elitism. But now the local party is doing door-to-door canvassing and getting a good response from voters angry about the Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. Even if the GOP wins rural districts, rebuilding the numbers and energy of Democratic activists helps increase the statewide numbers in places like Wisconsin with razor-tight races for U.S. Senator and Governor. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Italians went to the polls on September 25th. Most votes were won by a right-wing coalition led by Giorgia Maloney of the neo-fascist Brothers of Italy party, with roots in the post-World War II fascist Italian social movement. Conservative party coalition members include Matteo Salvini's League and Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia party, which together won more than 45% of the vote, enough to control both houses of parliament. If, as expected, Maloney is elected prime minister in mid or late October, she'll become Italy's first prime minister from a neo-fascist party since the end of World War II. Maloney, who defines herself as pro-traditional family, condemns abortion, LGBTQ rights, and gay adoption. She also promotes the so-called Great Replacement Theory that denounces the danger of ethnic substitution by immigrants a position embraced by a growing number of conservatives and Republicans in the U.S. Your reporter spoke with Jason Stanley, Jacob Erwoski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, and author of How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Here, Professor Stanley examines Italy's election of Giorgia Maloney 
as well as her ideological connection with the U.S. Republican Party. Giorgio Maloney is a neo-fascist political leader who, uh, who has all sorts of connections, who is further to the right even than the other Italian far right, like Matteo Salvini, who sort of made his career calling for turning boats of immigrants away so that they could face peril uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, sort of sailing around demagogically. And Maloney takes all that much further. Her rhetoric overlaps with Putin, uh, with uh, both Putin and her rail against the West, against the threat to national identity, the threat to gender roles. They talk about how globalists uh, are threatening all of tradition. So both Putin and Maloney said uh, roughly the same thing, that, oh, uh, in the West, they will call you parent one and parent two. Uh, They're eliminating the terms for parents, you know. So this incredibly harsh anti-LGBT rhetoric this existential culture war, which is reminiscent of Goebbels. Uh, if, if you want to see the kind of vocabulary here, see, I suggest Joseph Goebbels, a Nazi propaganda minister. Maloney is, ticks every fascist rhetorical box. Uh, she always talks about great replacement theory, the threat of immigrants replacing traditional Italians. She poses them as an existential threat uh, to the Italian nation. She poses LGBT as existential threats to Italian traditions. She has a background of quite explicit uh, pro-fascism, but moderated as, as she was running and getting more and more powerful. She sort of had to moderate. But it's looking like from the ministers that she's picking, from the Senate president to others, that she's picking people who are fascists, who are the most extreme on the Italian right. Uh, And the international press has done a terrible job here. They've fallen hook, line, and sinker. Uh, I mean, what what happens is people say, these aren't fascists. They're just ordinary conservatives. Giorgio Maloney is no ordinary conservative. Just watch one of her speeches on YouTube. (laughs) You know, rhetorically, uh, in terms of her background, in terms of many of the policies that she's pushed for, you know, great replacement theory is not an ordinary conservative view. She said she didn't want to take Italy out of the EU, but her supporters want her to take Italy out of the EU. You know, the people voting for her, they know she's just, you know, putting up a front. So there's been a number of just, frankly, you know, from my Italian sources, idiotic articles in the uh, international press about how she's just an ordinary conservative. But we know by now fascists moderate and present themselves as just slightly more extreme than ordinary conservatives in elections, and the international press falls for it time and again. Professor Stanley, neo-fascist Giorgia Malonia, now, now leader of the Italian state, is seen as a friend and ally of the U.S. Republican Party. She spoke at the Conservative Political Action Conference in February of this year, and she shares many of the views of Republicans here in this country one being the belief in the so-called great replacement theory that you mentioned a moment ago. Tell our listeners a little bit about the danger of the great replacement theory. Now, a line of thinking that's uh, shared uh, across borders, of course. A great replacement theory is a rhetorical trope that is central to fascist and indeed genocidal movements throughout the 20th century. So, in Madison Grant's The Passing of the Great Race, 
He was a white supremacist. He's saying that the great race, white people, it's a 1916 book, The Passing of the Great Race, that Hitler read and was deeply affected by. He's saying, you know, we have to stop immigration. We have this great race that is the greatest race in history. And uh, we're going to be outnumbered by these by these immigrants. And, you know, Mein Kampf is filled with this. Uh, so great replacement theory, it's associated not just with Ku Klux Klan fascist thinking, but also mass killers like Anders Breivik. Uh, the Buffalo shooter had a whole section on great replacement theory. The motivation for going into a supermarket in a black neighborhood and killing 10 black shoppers was great replacement theory. It's right there. It's a whole section. And then suddenly it becomes this thing that, you know, Tucker Carlson starts talking about it all the time. Uh, and it becomes normalized. And structurally, great replacement theory, it's, it's a kind of genocidal speech because it represents uh, immigrants as existential threats to uh, the nation. And so when you represent uh, something as an existential threat, well, you know, you can do anything to them. Uh, that's what Hitler did to the Jews who were at the, the, the heart of Hitler's version of great replacement theory. Unfortunately, in the United States, Tucker Carlson is uh, completely just goes on and on and on about it. It's very disturbing to see because it's just regularly been the justification for mass violence, both stochastic terrorism and large political uh, genocidal movements, as in Nazism. Uh, but here we are. That was Jason Stanley, Jacob Rawaski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and author of How Fascism Works. The Politics of Us and Them. Learn more about Italy's election of neo-fascist Giorgia Maloney and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In its last term, the U.S. Supreme Court, with its extremist right-wing supermajority, turned civil and human rights law in America upside down. The court handed down wildly unpopular rulings that ignored decades of precedent that criminalized abortion tearing away women's reproductive rights, further eroded the separation of church and state, weakened gun safety laws, and environmental regulations. The court that just began its new term is now poised to further strip away fundamental rights and protections for millions of Americans. In the 2013 case Shelby County v. Holder, a majority of justices ruled that Section 5 of the 1965 Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional, a provision that required states with a history of racial discrimination in voting to get pre-clearance that any election changes they wanted to make would not be discriminatory. In the 2021 case, Branovich v. Democratic National Committee, Justice Samuel Alito laid out five so-called guideposts to assess if election laws were discriminatory or not under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that many legal observers condemned as undercutting future challenges to biased election laws. Your reporter spoke with Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and past president of the National Lawyers Guild. Here she warns that the Supreme Court is likely headed to a ruling in the Merrill v. Milligan case that will further dismantle the Voting Rights Act Section 2 and, in essence, legalize election theft. In the Merrill case, which is the case where the court heard oral argument on the 4th, um, the court appears ready to further gut 
Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, but this time in the context of redistricting. In the Merrill case, which is an Alabama case, 27% of Alabama's residents are black, but only one of its seven congressional districts has a black majority, which reduces the probability of electing black representatives. And a federal district court composed of three judges, including two appointed by Trump, unanimously held that Alabama's GOP-drawn congressional district map probably violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that district court ordered Alabama to create a second district with a black majority or plurality. Um, The district court cited Alabama's extensive history of repugnant racial and voting-related discrimination, and it found a substantial and undeniable evidence of socioeconomic disparities that hinder black Alabamians' opportunity to participate in the political process. Well, in February, five right-wing members of the Supreme Court put the brakes on that district court decision while the high court considers the case, and that means that the discriminatory map in Alabama is being used in the 2022 midterm elections. Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is a really important provision because it also serves an important function in guaranteeing equal public resources for minority communities. And according to the Brennan Center for Justice, um, that jurisdictions where minority voters have successfully challenged discriminatory electoral districts, gaps in economic opportunity have narrowed, and that investment in basic infrastructure like roads and schools has improved. And this is probably the most um, disruptive case to minority voting in several decades, even worse than Shelby County and Burnabitch. So moving to the oral argument, which happened again, as I said, on October 4th, the court's right-wing majority seemed to be looking for a narrow way to uphold this discriminatory map in Alabama. The Alabama's solicitor general, who was arguing in support of this discriminatory map, said that the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was only meant to cover intentional discrimination on the basis of race. But, of course, the Congress ruled that if a law had discriminatory effects, even if they did not, the drafters of of the law did not intend to discriminate, that still violated Section 2. And that led John Roberts, Amy Coney Barrett, and probably Samuel Alito to say it's pretty well settled that this law is meant to um, cover discriminatory effects, not just discriminatory intent. Now, Thomas uh, said very little. Um, Gorsuch said nothing at all. And the questions that Roberts and Barrett and Kavanaugh asked were mainly neutral questions. So they really didn't tip their hand, although um, so they probably are not going to buy the Alabama Solicitor General's invitation to limit discrimination under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act only to intentional discrimination, but they look like they may find some narrower ground to uphold this discriminatory map. Perhaps most interesting was Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, who had just joined the court the day before for her first, and this was her second oral argument, and she was very vocal and 
very persuasive and very articulate. And she provided, Scott, kind of an originalist analysis of the 14th Amendment. She talked about the race conscious goal of the drafters of the 14th Amendment. She said they were trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against were actually brought equal to everyone else in society. And then Justice Jackson said, that's not a race-neutral or race-blind idea. So I think it's pretty clear that the three liberals on the court, um, Jackson, Sotomayor, and Kagan, will vote to strike down Alabama's map, and it remains to be seen on what theory the six right-wingers vote to uphold it. That was Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and past president of the National Lawyers Guild. Find a link to her recent article titled The Supreme Court May Well Legalize Election Theft This Term and Related Commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. California Governor Gavin Newsom just signed a law, Assembly Bill 2183, that will make it easier for the state's farm workers to vote in union elections, allowing them to vote by mail instead of at election sites, which are often on growers' property. A smaller union of farm workers in Washington state, Familias Unidas por la Justicia, or Families United for Justice, has been organizing for the past nine years. 500 workers, all Mexican indigenous immigrants, borrowed successful strategies from the United Farm Workers Union in California and carried out a strike and a three and a half year boycott against the agribusiness company Driscoll's. The strike and boycott ended in a 2016 vote by workers to unionize, making it the first newly formed farm workers union in 30 years. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Edgar Franks political director of the Familias Unidas Union, who talks about how the Washington state law, known as the Little Norris LaGuardia Act, permitted non-union workers to organize and eventually gain recognition. He also discusses current health and safety issues for farm workers, with the steep rise of dangerous temperatures in the field caused by climate change. We had the Little Norris LaGuardia Act, which really let the workers here organize themselves and function as a union, even though they weren't technically recognized because they didn't have a contract. You know, that didn't stop the organizing from the farm workers. You know, they held elections, they voted their e-board, executive board, and their president and vice president, and eventually were able to do a series of actions and nationwide campaigns to bring attention to what was happening to farm workers in Washington state. Yeah, it took three and a half years, but we're able to get the employer to sit down and finally recognize and negotiate a contract. At that time, that was like a a pretty big deal for us. Edgar Franks, I know extreme heat has become an even bigger problem for people who work outside, including farm workers, due to the climate crisis. What have your workers noticed? 
there, yeah, for the last five or six years, there's been a noticeable change in the climate here with obviously, you know, workers that are out in agriculture that have to work 10 to 12 hours a day, uh, whether it be in the heat or in the extreme cold. Um, there still is inadequate rules or protections in place in the state here because of how fast the climate has been changing. And I think that's come to a head these last couple of, of years because of how temperatures have just risen so drastically. You know, now it's not uncommon to have um, 100 degree days like for a sustained period of time. Maybe it was normal more in the central and eastern part of the state. On the western part of the state, you know, it was more moderate temperatures. Now it's it's common. Um, that and the increase presence of wildfires in places that have never had wildfires historically, like the Olympic Peninsula and the rainforest that we have here, it caught fire like for the first time ever in recorded history a couple of years ago. So not only with a heat, but then now we're dealing with the effects of of the wildfires and the smoke that presents a, a health danger to to agricultural workers and, and to everybody that, that lives here in the state. So what, if anything, has the union been able to do to protect workers? Well, we've been trying to pressure the governor to declare a climate emergency, to move resources into fighting the reality that we're all witnessing right before our eyes, that Washington needs to do its part to take leadership in stopping emissions and creating programs and all these other things that are needed for the workers and communities that are going to be affected by climate change. Agricultural workers directly impacted of climate and their environment. We want first the, the governor to declare that emergency. And another one is to um, adopt uh, adequate rules that can protect workers that are out in, in the fields. Uh, you know, handing out personal protective equipment or making sure workers are protected, enforcing guidelines. There was a rule here that was passed, emergency rule, last year to implement these protocols to protect farm workers, such as taking a preventative 10-minute break if you feel heat sickness, heat illness. However, that those protocols didn't kick in until it reached over 100 degrees. And for us, that was very unacceptable and very insulting. And this year, the there was emergency rules and protocols that were in place again, but the trigger point for those protocols were still at 90 degrees, which we still think is it's very hot. So we've been recommending and organizing to make sure that workers' needs are, are being, our voices are being listened to. So we're recommending that a lot of the rules and the protocols um, get implemented when it's at 75 degrees. Um, once it reaches 80 degrees, that worker should be given hazard pay along with the protocols. And once it reaches 90 degrees, that everybody should just be allowed to go home and paid if they missed any hours. That was Edgar Franks, political director with the Familias Unidas por la Justicia Farmworkers Union. Learn more about farmworkers union organizing by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KHOI in Ames, Iowa, KRFP in Moscow, Idaho, KPOV in Bend, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.